So I wonder if anyone has had the question in mind today, when is the joy part coming? (laughs) Very recently I was on a um, night flight along Red Eye. And in the dark there was a baby that started to cry. And it was crying in the dark for the longest time. And you could feel, I felt my mind doing things about, like, why doesn't the mother do something about this? And, like, ugh. But also just feeling the, just the wrenching unconsolability of that little being. Then in the morning, you know, you land and everybody's tottering around and getting your stuff out and like looking and making sure you're not left anything behind. And there's this little kid there who's like the cutest little thing and it starts to make those baby flirty eyes at me like... "Mm." And I said to my husband, gosh, that baby is such an angel. And he said, it's not, it's a devil. It's the one that was yelling (laughs) last night. And I'm like, really? That can't be the same baby. (laughs) And he's like, yes, it's the same baby. (laughs) So in a way, that's kind of us. You know, everyone was feeling the same as the baby through that night, but fortunately the whole airplane wasn't screaming, (laughs) I would say. Like, we've developed as adults in a way, sometimes a way of being more stoic or consoling ourselves um, in a way that makes it possible for everyone to make it through the night together. So I'm wondering about today, like, um, what did you call upon in the times when you might have liked to scream or leave? Um, What was supportive of you to be here and stay here? Just to let yourself remember some of the moments that your mind might have wandered off and gone and started chewing on things that were painful um, memories or emotions or boredom or things that it feels like maybe our awareness is still more of a baby than the states that it's asked to handle. And all the times when we brought our attention back from those places and just found the breath again or found the moment or saw that uh, a few hours later it was you know, more easy to bear. So I'd like us to um, appreciate ourselves and each other a little bit for making it through this day and make a little room in our hearts for uh, what everybody had to work with and the skills that we're developing here. It's part of the practice and part of the instructions back from the time of the Buddha that it's advisable to frequently dwell upon, dwell in your mind upon that which brings well-being, upon your own goodness, the goodness of your heart, which is involved in bringing your mind back to the present and participating in this endeavor non-harming and supporting each other. You've all behaved pretty well today, I think. As far as we know, we don't know what you're doing in your rooms. Um, Only you know those things. But at least it's in your room. Um, (laughs) 
We're also invited to develop the skill of gladdening the mind, which is something I'm going to talk about a little bit here. But the space of welcoming that we make with our attention and our intention, the giving of attention again and again in a kind of unconditional way, no matter what is coming up, that's fundamental to the practice of joy. We've tried to make a safe outer space through the precepts and through the attitude of the staff in this place here so that in a way we can be naked to ourselves here. No cash, no phones, uh, no entertainment. Just what comes up and how does it feel to be this kind of human in full bloom without distraction? How does it feel in your heart right now? And that's all the practice is really about, as um, Pascal and I have been trying to explain. Pascal, I think, has a special way of um, being respectful and also just slightly, sweetly um, humorous about all the things that our minds can do. Something very loving about the kind of attention that just comes back again and again to all the degrees of our experience As we do this again and again, there starts to be a space of some kind of acceptance and some kind of tolerance for um, just the being human. As the bell hooks, the African-American thinker says, wherever we are is the appropriate place to practice and now is the appropriate time. But for many of us, the longing to love and be loved has always been about a time to come. But this happiness or joy that we're looking for is not in the future. It's now. I mean, when we yearn for an experience of happiness, it's actually an experience that we would be having in a moment that would be a now, right? And there's a way in which expecting happiness to come in the future almost creates a sense of lack by comparison. So that's a kind of habit that it's worth keeping our eye on. It's not to say that we don't invest in progress or we don't have goals, but also to overlook the moment is um, is kind of brings a problem to us also. As that great bodhisattva Oprah Winfrey says, (laughs) She practices going from A to B, which is awareness to being. We are also trying to go from A to A, like just being where we already are and how tricky that can be. So I wonder also to ask yourself, uh, how do you like it? Does it feel like something onward leading or integrating or conducive to well-being? I must say that in retreat you don't really get the get to the bliss without the rawness that they are together. So what we feel when it's difficult and how we do our best to open to what's going on is intimately linked to the capacity for rejoicing and abandoning the sense of what kind of happiness we might expect or want or idealize for the future in favor of accepting what's happening now, that's a very difficult, tricky kind of movement. 
And it's mysterious since connecting with what's happening now often is quite difficult. Like, even after how long I've practiced, um, more years than I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say. I think, when did I start? In 77, I think, a long time. It's amazing to think that some, somebody gets in there and changes the channel. Like, I'll be with my breath or something, and all of a sudden I'll be like, wow, look what I'm thinking about now. And suddenly I'm worrying about what somebody said to me a week ago that I hadn't really thought about it, but it really hurt. So my mind is there, kind of chewing on it, trying to make it right somehow or other. And I think one of the biggest shifts in the long time of practice is that I don't feel so disappointed when the channel gets changed anymore. Like I've taught myself to appreciate my mind even for worrying, like saying like, thank you, you're really trying to fix this, aren't you? You're really trying to take care of me, to acknowledge that almost at all times our being is trying to maximize its well-being, even if it's not doing it in the most uh, workable way. Somehow our mind is always trying to help us out and getting often overactive in that. So, so many, so many moments of distraction. It's almost like the minute you decide that you'll be present is the minute you discover that you can't be or that it's very hard. But this knowing of distraction is actually a part of um, developing wisdom and tolerance and appreciating the capacity for distraction itself. It's part of the creativity of our mind. I was just reading that um, it looks like human beings 35,000 years ago were starting to draw pictures of like little pigs and horses all over their cave walls, like sitting around drawing things and blowing colored powder over their hands to show that they were here. Or for some reason, we don't really know what it meant that they were doing that, but they were making marks and representing things outwardly and showing that there we were kind of artistic inwardly creating this uh, imaginary world that's in our mind. So I feel it's very important to be quite tender toward all the things our mind gets up to and all the places where it goes and worries and tells stories to itself. And yet also to know how tenderly and skillfully to work with these things that our mind does and sometimes to abandon them or let them let them go and not necessarily perpetuate them. There was the study where they would call people on their cell phones every so often and um, ask them what they were doing and to rate their level of well-being. And most of the time people were happier if they were actually ironing mindfully than if they were ironing and thinking about a vacation. Another time when they tended to be happy was when they were having sex. And when I asked myself, was like, why were they answering their iPhone <laughs> at that moment? <laughs> like, they must have really been, like, dedicated to this study. <laughs> so there's something about knowing how to be here that is joyous, but not always and only joyous. It's joyous in a different way. This practice is a kind of uh, freedom of not being conditioned by what's happening uh, to be willing to show up. It's, we're not only willing to show up for the st- stuff that feels like what we want, but we're willing to show up for everything that happens. 
in about 2004, um, the first time Paok Sayada came here to teach a concentration retreat, I think Pascal went, I don't remember what year it was, but I know you went to it. And I didn't go, because it was a two-month retreat and I had one month that I could meditate and I had this deathly fear of trying to concentrate and not being able to. And meanwhile, I also had this opportunity to do something really different, which was fulfilling a long-held aspiration to meditate in a cave. Like My friend in the Tibetan store in Porter Square said, oh, cave, you want to meditate in a cave? I can fix that up for you. I know a cave, perfect cave for you. <laughs> she had a friend who had a cave, and the other half of her cave was sometimes empty. So I thought this would be really fun and interesting to do and it'll kind of stop me from feeling like I need to be the complete meditator who's if I've never meditated in a cable now I have (laughs) (laughs) so since it was a Tibetan community I asked my Tibetan teacher what I should do while I was there and I had also just finished this huge set of practices called the Nundra which is where you have to do a hundred thousand prostrations and a hundred thousand lengthy mantras and a hundred thousand offerings of rice and a hundred thousand repetitions of the merging of your mind with the enlightened mind as best you can and all these formulas and stuff. It had taken me way longer than it was supposed to, which is usually the case with me. So he said, why don't you rejoice that you finished it? And I'm like, wow, really? For a month? And he said, yes, for a month, rejoice. So I get there and I'm like, I don't know, like, that feels self-indulgent or like what good is that going to do? Like that felt sort of like lazy or selfish or basically I didn't trust the instruction that it was any, that it was onward leading. I sort of had this feeling of like, all right, well I'll rejoice for a little while. And then I started doing some more prostrations. <laughs> I thought I'm going to do another number. I'm going to start a second set of this 500,000 things, which I'm proud to report. I have since abandoned that project. But <laughs> And meanwhile, this other nun in the cave who was taking care of me kept appearing with these huge plates of rice as if she felt like I would be hungry. And she was sort of three big meals a day plus tea and cookies in the afternoon. Like She kept like knocking and she'd be like, are you hungry? And I'd go over to her house and she'd feed me, you know, and then she would tell me all these Tibetan things. Like I wrote an article about this that, so this is the finger that you point with. This is the ring finger where you put your ring. This is the ring of your special channel, and if you're having trouble in childbirth, you put both fingers up your nose, and it really helps, supposedly, she said. And this is the dirty finger. This is the one where you go, like, some people know it's the same as the other mudra that we make. So anyway, I I had a lot of fun with her. (laughs) And afterwards, I realized my retreat had been something that I could never have imagined. Like, somehow she had filled a... I remember waking up in the middle of the night and feeling like my mother was right through the wall, like a mother that I hadn't really had or been able to appreciate um, until I was the age that I was, that she kept kind of trying to take care of me and I was letting her do it um, and not feeling it as an interruption or a, or a deficit in the kind of retreat that I was having. So it did something great for my heart and it also set me with this question about why hadn't I been able to rejoice? Like, why didn't I trust the instruction? And thinking about how I felt like I had to be doing something to improve my meditation practice all the time. Like, I had to be really rough and tough. And um, Maybe that meant that I felt I was lacking in some way. There was some lack 
of in the experience that I had or that I had access to a desire to sort of be in control and know what I was doing um, go back to something familiar like some more prostrations like <coughs> counting those and then over time I've seen that that sense of yearning was also a wish for wholeness you know that there it's both the feeling of lack and the wish for wholeness are together but if we just stay with that feeling of lack that drives the human race to so much creativity but also so much hell it's like that bumper sticker that says where are we going and why are we in this handbasket <laughs> Can we just sometimes be with a feeling of lack and explore it as a feeling? Like, can we be present with that infant who's hard to console inside ourselves and find a way of letting that be, arise and passing as a feeling? Um, being able to see that our heart naturally opens and closes, our heart beat is naturally sometimes clenched and the same with our mind like sometimes our mind will be very very open and bright and clear and sometimes so confused and dark and frightened and fretting so how do we be with both of those things and I think it's the opening and softening that comes gradually um, through the process of paying attention this way that starts to be the ground of joy, really. It's paradoxical, it's being open to oneself when one is closed. Like if we look at what our normal mind, adequately functioning human mind is, it's like we're, we busy ourselves a lot with keeping negative feelings, experiences and people away from us as best we can. And depending on positive experiences, people and things, trying to keep those around. But it doesn't completely work, it only works up to a point. So that's what we're here doing is, what about the point beyond that? Where we can't always keep our worries at bay, or we can't always control what comes into our life from the outside or from the inside. What about this? And there's a part of our mind that doesn't know any better than to sort of worry about things or try to resolve them in ourself or fantasize about a future time when it will be better or something. In what, I don't know what you call this new neuro-psycho-spiritual mindfulness study realm where they're constantly mapping our brains and watching the blood flow in the frontal lobe. But they've discovered that human beings have this thing called the default mode network, um, which you can see for yourself if this is what your mind is normally doing, which is normally not being here. It's either in the past or the future. Um, there's a certain amount of worrying about how I'm doing compared to other people, like am I lovable enough or am I good enough? Am I cool enough? Am I whatever enough um, in regard to people that we want to feel connected to or what happens when we feel disconnected? Certain amount of problem solving that happens. And all of this is the psyche's desire for well-being and survival um, that just keeps constantly running. 
it actually starts before we're born. They've found that little fetuses are worrying in the womb even before they have anything (laughs) they know they can worry about. (laughs) Poor things. (laughs) The gay enlightened poet uh, Walt Whitman said, stop this day and night with me and you shall possess the origin of all poems. You shall no longer take things at second or third hand nor look through the eyes of the dead. There will never be any more perfection than there is right now, nor any more heaven or hell than there is right now. So dropping out of that default network while understanding sort of why it's there, that maybe we evolved this way to be watchful for harms and try to stave things off, but at a certain point letting that keep humming doesn't help us anymore. We can all say that were the what are you the successful off, offspring of the worriers, but we can see how the worry may not uh, be so good for us in the moment. So in the space here, where we're relatively safe and warm and fed, we can start to look at other options. We can also look at the anticipation that creates the sense of lack, like the great jazz pianist Herbie Hancock when he came to Harvard and gave a series of lectures I think it was two years ago he said usually we think of happiness as being getting to the finish line and being by the ocean with a rum drink in our hand and part of our mind really seems to think that right and it's not to say that that is a bad or not to say that it isn't even like a wonderful thing to be able to relax that way if we have the privilege to do it But deeper than being able to go on a vacation at the beach is, Herbie says, see if you agree, making friends with yourself and seeing if you can be of some benefit in the world. He said when he plays, he plays to make the other musicians look good. And it makes the whole music sort of go better rather than himself be the star. So we're making friends here, like through our quality of awareness and presence. Maybe we'll touch at some point on the quiet truth of what we are beyond what we think or beyond the labels that define us as well as separating us. It's also helpful in gladdening the mind as we become skillful with our attention to make sure that you take in the things that are good, the things that feel supportive. I was saying that earlier, like sometimes if I'm in a difficult space, I might um, look around me and see the other people in the room and think how much we're supporting each other. Some of the people that I know or I have known for years and I feel like, you know, you're my friends. So I'm not alone with it. I'm not as alone as I feel. Or I remember my husband who gave me sort of the permission to come here and keeps the house going and I asked him to water the plants in my office because they were dry and I didn't have time before I came. So it's sweet of him. I know he'll do it um, at some point. Maybe not as soon as I wish that he would. I said, when should I do it? He said, right away, I said. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) Maybe... (laughs) Maybe you'll do it by the time I get back. I don't know. (laughs) So to trust that as we're paying attention this way, we're actually engaging some of the very deepest 
parts of ourselves, this fundamental quality of being aware and the ability to enter our life with a deeper attention, um, how fruitful that might be. I saw the when the cell phones came here, I thought like of all the address books and all those cell phones and all the tweets and everything that had emanated from each of us, you know, the many, many connections and what it means for you all to give up those connections for a time. I, I sense that behind it there's the wish to re-enter them with a, some kind of deeper, you know, what you might call soulful quality than the routine um, kind of habitual way that it is. And that's what this kind of attention can also give us. The haiku that Pascal mentioned this morning about snail, how did you get here? You know, we might ordinarily look at a snail and just worry about stepping on it or think that it should go into the next person's garden, but to really see for what it is, this beauty of life, the fact that we're lucky to be able to be here in this quiet space to take time away from stuff. Like there's people in this world, like not so far from where we live, who wouldn't be able to do this. It's quite special to wake up each day, even if the day is going to be sort of a mess. My dad, in the last day or two of his life, said, um, life is beautiful, Katie, he said to me. "Um, I wish I could stay with you a little longer. And I took that as a kind of, you know, inquiry for myself, like how much do I see life as beautiful or how much do I see it as not so great and or something to be gotten through or some task to be accomplished. And I thought maybe I'm deficient in that regard. I looked into it um, because it was a question about joy. And what I found where I felt like it wasn't um, so beautiful to me was something about, maybe it was even a little imprint from my dad, like um, he was very good at finding pleasure and sometimes his ways of finding pleasure, I have to say, were not always so helpful for everyone else. (laughs) So part of what I'm trying to communicate is that like to tell the truth about him in that way and also to say that he gave me something else, like there was love and there's also knowing that sometimes he could be like not that great. And they're both there in the love that I feel for him and me and the connection that we had. So coming close to life means like there's often so much joy and pain and they're really so close to one another. Like they're in our own person and they're in the people all around us. They're in the diverse circumstances that each of us has lived before we came here and that influence the way that we are here. We have riches and powers that come from our culture and our family, and we also have all kinds of hardships that came to us inwardly and outwardly. And with this quality of being able to attend to all sides of this, all sides of who we are, something else shines through. Something in us that wants to really, like, taste the tomato or really love our life it's I mean I think that's what we're doing here and there's something to rejoice in that I think
If I talk on very much, I could go on. I actually cut out a little bit, but you will all be really mad at me because the dinner is coming soon. Oh, look, 15 more minutes. Yikes, now what am I going to (laughs) do? I'm not always very good with time. So today I say, like, in my life I practice this joy practice every morning and with my sisters, and we send text messages to each other quite frequently of stuff that we appreciate, like in the day, like it could be the sound of rain or birds at the feeder or something. This is based on sort of current research that if you will write down three things you're grateful for every day, your mind is primed to start to look for that. And it's very supportive of well-being. It's also really fun and interesting to see what it is that makes my sister happy on a given day, like when her neighbor moves the garbage can or something for her. Like It's kind of a little window into the wild mystery of life, you know. And some days we say the same things over and over, like I'm grateful for my husband or my child or salmon or something like that. It feels prosaic, and yet it's actually communicating something that was felt like a, a little spark in that other person's life. Like, And that's an interesting thing about how this practice of intensifying attention can bring our life to life in a way. It's kind of like making love to the same husband for 25 years. It's like, it's not the same as when we were just like, <gasps> you know, like unable to stay away from each other. Now it's kind of like, well, would we rather eat popcorn and watch Orange is the New Black? <laughs> or, <laughs> you know. <laughs> I'm always happy when we sort of make the effort. <laughs> So it's a little bit like that. I mean, I don't know, you're not all like as old as me, but (laughs) (laughs) it also takes some sense of humor when you're on retreat. Like the last time I was on retreat, I found myself in my room vacuuming the top of the closet unit and (laughs) thinking like, why haven't anyone vacuumed this before? You know, like I'm the only one who really wants to have a clean room. And you know, <laughs> it was like, I was about it, 10 minutes into it and I was like, oh my God, you are crazy. <laughs> you're so bored. <laughs> Look what you're doing. <laughs> so it's like the mastery of this mind is not by crushing it into submission because it's not that absolutely doesn't work. Um, I might talk about that a little bit more the next time. But it's the same thing that just to be able to laugh at ourselves at times and also treat ourselves with love and respect. It's the same inwardly as outwardly. This kind of witness that we bear to what goes on inside us is also a witness that we bear to the world. Like a lot of what goes on inside us came from this outer world that we all share. Like the news and the politics and the fear and the racism and what uplifts us is not ours alone. It's kind of a resonance that uh, moves through us. So the love and respect that we're able to give to ourself in this witnessing is also something that we're encouraged to turn to the world outside us. That it's a way of being of benefit is uh, just to bear witness. Sometimes it's the only thing you can do. The meditation group that I lead in Cambridge had for years this inquiry about what's the meaning of compassion or what's the use of compassion when you can't do anything 
about certain things, like does it matter if we care about someone on the other side of the world whose life is in trouble, who we may not be able to help overtly? And we gave ourselves the answer when um, one person was reading a book about uh, prisoners of war who were being unfairly executed and they said it, it made all the difference if the other prisoners at least uh, went to the place where they could watch and they accompanied the person with their eyes so the person knew that they were being witnessed as this unfair thing happened. It wasn't as if the people hid from it. The other people hid from it and let them go alone. So anyway, that felt like an answer for me about also why this practice of being aware can be helpful outwardly even if we may not be able to do everything. And it's also not necessarily enough, just as practicing joy might include a need for self-expression or creativity when we're out of here. There's all kinds of different fun things you can do to express joy in the outer world, like a not available here. But this ability to witness, I think, is really critical to that. And the ability to witness and the ability to choose how we relate to what's happening in us also teaches us about relating to people outside and situations that we find difficult. To remember the humanity of those whose views are different from ours. Um, And to affirm that as a value rather than dehumanizing one another, which seems to be a trend. It may be that there's just too many of us for us to hold in heart is it, in a natural way. But this kind of love and respect that we offer unconditionally inwardly, where we're not really trying to control what happens, but just to attend to it skillfully, and sometimes a little encouraging hand in some direction, you know, um, encouraging movement, but it's not in the sense of having power over what happens in ourself. Same thing outside, that sense of respect and attention and encouragement is not the same as um, having power over or subjugating other people. So it's kind of a tricky thing. It's an art, this kind of attention, this ability to rejoice. So we each learn how to do it in our own way, like figuring out what we need and finding how to navigate based on these teachings, which are of the middle, you know, that's always called the middle way. It's a little of each. Like we try to pay attention to the breath and be present, but we also don't get mad at ourselves when we think. Eventually we start to be able to know that we're thinking in the present moment and you take a different position. Then you have a choice on how you relate to any particular thought or feeling, whether it's worth following or whether it's just worth seeing as a type of energy like that starts to happen it starts to feel like just a play of really different energies and then you have uh, something available to that can really change your life and it's different from changing all the outer circumstances like as the yoga teacher Cindy Lee said the problem wasn't with my body it was my attitude toward it So I'll close with a quote from André Gide, who said, Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. 
Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. I'll say that again. Know that joy is rarer, more difficult, and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. Freely undertaken for oneself. Is, that's the Buddhist spirit. It's not like Andreji telling you, like, now you have to do this. You know? But see if, for you, this learning how to be here um, can be infused with that kind of joy. Joy about it. Joy about your own being. Gladness that we have a life to share. Let's take a couple minutes of silence and then if there's a couple of questions or observations, we can do that. So since dinner isn't for another 10 minutes almost, would anyone like to say anything? Yes. When your teacher told you to rejoice for the love, so what did you actually do? In the cave, when you read it, were you saying all the time, I'm happy, I'm wonderful, I'm so What did you actually... How did I do it? Yeah. Well, I didn't do it very much, as I was saying. <laughs> I thought I was glad I had completed my lengthy task. I was like, that was done. I, I did a good thing. I reviewed the difference between my mind at the time and my mind as it had been before I started. Like, did it, you know, did it help me? How did it change me? And I found that it was a little bit better. I was a little bit better off, and I rejoiced in that. But I basically didn't really know how to do it. So I didn't do it. <laughs> But it became something like part of my practice now because it made me wonder why I didn't, why I couldn't relate to the instruction. I was like, I don't know. The rat in the nun's trap had twin babies this morning. Am I supposed to rejoice that there was two instead of one? And then she took it away to the waste ground and let them all go. You know, like, I guess that's a good thing. (laughs) Something like that. I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. that seems almost constantly engaged in what I'll call ego-building, mm-hmm. trying to uh, create this set for a movie of called Me, mm-hmm. behind which there's nothing. And it would be okay if it was grand and funny or something, but for the most part it, it's really petty. Mm-hmm. 
Joseph Goldstein loves to say that uh, self-knowledge is often bad news. (laughs) (laughs) Well, would it be possible to befriend that sad little voice? Like, as if it were, like, I often will use the language of, like, a part of me or something like it's a it's a certain pattern that's expressing a sense of lack or deficiency right it's kind of there's a compassionate response that's possible rather than wishing it would go away like wishing it would go away is where the suffering really comes from rather than the pettiness of that petty or mean or comparing like Um, at the risk of overly self-disclosing. Anyone else in the room ever have such thoughts? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's both ridiculous and, you know, kind of poignant that we have this kind of mind that tries to cover up the uncertainties of life with feeling slightly better than the Joneses, and then, you know, in a hundred years, no one will remember any of us, kind of, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So try a little tenderness, if you can. You're also welcome to talk about it when you come to the group. Uh as being progressive. I've found that there are some parts or layers of me that know that and some that feel that they know the opposite. If I move towards joy, it'll it'll, um, lead to stagnation. Right. Have you done any experiments? Yes. Yeah. There was relatively little context that I had in the context of, let's say, uh, the Buddhist canon. Right. Uh, for understanding the wisdom in our organisms and pulses towards joy. Right. Well, the Buddha said really that um, all we want is well being. Really, like we all want to be happy. That's just a basic and it's actually wholesome because it is what brings us to the meditation practice and we can't always control the outcome when we follow an intention we can often sense the quality of the intention whether it's a little greedy or there's a little self in it 
you know, like I want something for me and it might distort the situation when I push for it and then afterwards you might see, you know, that didn't necessarily lead to, right? So it's cool that we have, like, in a sense, that fine sense of internal ethics. But it's complicated because there will be messages from culture and family and things about what are legitimate pursuits and, right? So I think the best we can do is sort of uh, grub around a little bit and see what turns out to be a mistake and what works, you know? (laughs) But it can be very subtle, like Pascal was talking about mischievously pulling the door out of somebody's reach or, you know, when I'm figuring out what to pack for a retreat, I sometimes think, like, I should wear this outfit. And then I'm like, do I really want to wear this outfit? And do you know what I mean? There can be an interplay of that. And sometimes I just let myself wear the outfit that I want to wear, which is like, wow, I can do this. You know, so little things like that are fun to play with. Like, what do I really feel? What am I really drawn to? Um, Is it harmful? And a little bit of caution is good. Like, complete hedonism is not necessarily the solution. A little bit of hedonism, I think, is a good approach to life. But overly, being overly trusting or overly, like, live for the moment also doesn't necessarily work out. So, I don't know, I say trust yourself as best you can. You know, learn learn what things in yourself to trust and what things to question and play with it. How have I learned, I think, through um, loving-kindness and awareness. Like, loving-kindness shines a type of light on on what's happening internally. Like, a type of respect for every voice that comes up. Like, to say, like, okay, so I'll listen to this and not try to shut it down. But it may also not have the right to control me. You know, like, okay, so this wish is here, this impulse, this desire is here. Does it make me feel like, unless I do this, I won't be okay or something? You know, does it have that quality of craving? Or is it just something kind of simple and natural? That, Or is it something that brings up fear but might actually be good? I don't know. Sometimes I ask a friend, too. <laughs> it's a great question. Okay, now it is dinner time. Thank you all for your ears and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.